0: morning hello humans hello hello all humans out there Ellie Krug here with Ellie 2.0 radio on AM 950 happy Monday I hope it's been a great start to a to a week hey it, it's got to be good I mean we are heading into absolute June we're heading into real summer and uh, here in Minnesota remember um, if you if you blink too quickly summer will go by so welcome to uh, hidden edges excuse me <laughs> that's the wrong show R- welcome to LE 2.0 I've got two radio shows on this station and sometimes I get confused so you know what this show is about this show is about Practical Idealism by me about other idealists. It's about me sharing stories of people who are idealists Or who exhibit behavior that sparks idealism And so I have two segments my a segment where I talk about another human and then then my B segment where I share about my experience and For my a segment. I'm gonna talk about somebody that almost everybody on uh, listening right now at least above the age of 55. (laughs) Okay, well, so maybe, hopefully, we've got a lot of people under 55, but those above 55 will know who I'm talking about, and that is about Jackie Robinson. It is spring, as I said. It's baseball time, and finally, I need to talk about Jackie Robinson because I, I can't do this show about idealists without talking about Jackie Robinson, and for those of those who don't know who he is, he is the first major league black professional baseball player. Jackie Robinson is famously known for breaking the color bar- barrier in professional baseball, major league professional baseball. And so um, and uh, so, older listeners, we're gonna go a little bit down a memory lane, and, and trust me, uh, I've got nine minutes and 10 seconds left to talk to you about Jackie Robinson. Uh, we could do nine hours and ten minutes to talk about him, so it's going to be very quick here. So, uh, but here are a couple of, uh, a stab at the basics, all right? Jackie Robinson was born in January 1919 in... Cairo, Georgia. He was born into a family of sharecroppers. He was the youngest of five children. And through a stroke of luck, he ended up moving with his family to Pasadena, California. it was after the father had abandoned the family. The mother took the children to Pasadena. And ultimately, he, uh, Jackie Robinson graduated from high school, attended Pasadena City College, and then the University of California at Los Angeles. What many people may not know is he excelled, excelled at all sports. And in fact, he had brothers who excelled at sports. One of his brothers was in uh, the Olympics. Um, and so Jackie Robinson played track and uh, played football, participated in track in addition to baseball. Um, now, up until Robinson, Jackie Robinson played professional baseball, black players were part of what was called the Negro League. Um, it was there was high segregation in, in baseball and the Negro League, trust me, had you know, not nearly as, as um, much notoriety or resources as professional white baseball teams. But all of that changed on April 15, 1947, when Jackie Robinson took to the field with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, two years later, in 1949, he was named the National League Most Valuable Player. Now, he was the first black to ever uh, get that honor. And, I mean, just think about that. I mean, in two years, uh, he had he had done such building of reputation as well as, as as a performance. He was an excellent baseball player that he was named MVP. He continued to play with the Brooklyn Dodgers. He never left them until October of 1956 when he retired. He stayed with that team the entire time. So some facts about Jackie Robinson that you might know. Not no. He entered the Army shortly after World War II. He was drafted and sent to Fort Riley, Kansas for officer candidate school. He became a second lieutenant. Then he was sent to Fort Hood for tank school. He was part of the Black Panthers. Oh, there's it for our younger people. There's a name I'm familiar with, um, which which was the nickname for the 761st Tank Battalion. And so he was... Um, being groomed to head um, to at least command a tank, if not multiple tanks within that, the Black Panthers tank battalion. But then something happened um, to him while he was in the military in July of 1944. He boarded a, an army bus and had the audacity to set, sit at the front of the bus. Now remember, in World War II, the army was segregated. So black men were being drafted to go fight for an America... Where, where they did not have equal rights, where they would come back and live in Jim Crow South and be treated like crap. Just think about that, okay? Get drafted by your country, put your neck on the line, risk your life, and then come back and be treated as a totally inferior human, not even a human by many people in the South. So in July of 44, Jackie Robinson gets on an army bus and he sits in the front. The bus driver ordered him to the back of the bus, and Jackie Robinson refused. He did. Sounds like Rosa Parks, doesn't it? I never knew this about Jackie Robinson, but it actually was pretty defining, because eventually the military police were called, and Robinson was the subject of a court-martial. However, a white jury, nine, uh, nine white men, acquitted uh, Robinson of all charges— Um, But what that did, and here's a stroke of luck, I mean, maybe you get a payoff for standing up and speaking truth to power. Maybe you do get a payoff for it because Robinson was not, because he was the subject of a court-martial, because he was restricted restricted to base, um, he could not ship out with his tank battalion when they went off to war in World War II. So who knows? Had this not happened, maybe Jackie Robinson would have been wounded or, God forbid, killed in the war, and we would never have gotten him as an American hero. So, um, following the war, uh, Jackie Robinson played for uh, the Kansas City Monarchs in the Negro League, Um, but he uh, certainly felt... Um, a desire to try out for the major leagues. And by then, uh, that would be the white major leagues. By then, Branch Rickey, the general manager for, manager for the Brooklyn Dodgers was scouting the Negro Leagues for a ba- black player. He was interviewing black players. And he interviewed Robinson in August of 1945. And uh, they had a very intense talk about Rob, whether Robinson with his history of standing up for himself uh, whether, and and um, I haven't gotten into it, but he was he stood up for other people as well, whether Robinson could take all of the racial hatred that would be directed at him. And Robinson thought that Ricky was looking for a coward who wouldn't fight back. And Ricky said, no, that's not what he wanted. He actually wanted somebody who had great guts because he wanted somebody with guts enough not to fight back. That's a quote, with guts enough not to fight back. And apparently Robinson convinced him that he did have those kinds of guts. So Jackie Robinson signed with the Dodgers. He went to the Dodgers minor minor league um, for the 1946 season. But that was not easy. In the minor leagues, he couldn't stay on the road with the team because they played mainly in the South due to segregation. There were several Florida cities that refused to even allow the Monarchs, this is the Dodgers' um, farm team, to allow them to, uh, to even play. They, sh- they, they shut them out from the stadiums because Robinson was part of the team. But when Robinson did play, he excelled. He was called up to the major leagues and, as I said, did his first game on April 15, 1947 at Ebbets Field um, in Brooklyn. And there were twenty-six thousand spectators on that at that game, fourteen thousand of which were black. Later, um, there was a threat um, in nineteen uh, excuse me in nineteen forty-seven, going into forty-eight. There was a threat of a player strike. Um, certain teams, the players uh, on those teams, were threatening to strike if Robinson was allowed to play in their stadiums. Um, But that was shut down by the um, uh, Major League Baseball, and essentially they were told that anyone who struck would be um, uh, terminated from uh, playing baseball. There was name-calling by players and managers, but players started to come around in 1948, the following year when... Uh, Robinson played. I mean, he had problems on his team, but in 1948, after Robinson had been called horrible names by Cincinnati fans yelling slurs, one of Robinson's teammates, a man named Pee-wee Reese, some of you may find that familiar because of the Pee-wee Baseball League, Pee-wee Reese, another Dodger, uh, got up and went out of the field and put his arm around Robinson in response to the Cincinnati fans yelling, slurs. And Reece said later, you could hate a man for many reasons, but color is not one of those reasons. By 1948, there were more black players um, who had entered the league, and as I said, Robinson retired in 1956. For his bravery and how revered uh, Jackie Robinson is, Major League Baseball retired his number, that is number 42 to be used by no other player ever again. I love this quote best about Robinson. Quote, I'm not concerned with your liking or disliking me. All I ask is that you respect me as a human being. Really, that's all that it's all about, respecting people. Not seeing color, not seeing their marginalized class, but just about respecting them. When we come back, I'll do my B segment um, uh, uh, about me <laughs> it's all about Ellie. Thanks a lot. I love hearing I love hearing from my guests. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, micro-needling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit brendingelectrolysis.com. Robert Burrill here. Looking to add some comedy to your Saturday nights? Tune in to Laughing Matters right here on AM 950 at 7 p.m. to join myself along with the funniest comedians in the Twin Cities for an hour of topical social commentary and blatant self-promotion. Laughing Matters is brought to you by Stand Up Records, the recording label of the best comedians in the country, from Doug Stanhope to Hannibal Buress. Visit them online at www.standupcrap.com. At Pride Institute, being LGBTQ plus is the norm, not the exception. Their highly trained and skilled staff understand your issues and will help you live a happy, healthy life as a proud LGBTQ plus person. They offer you hope to overcome your addiction and live the life you want. Their treatment programs are designed to assist you in developing the knowledge, skills, and attitudes for long-term recovery. Therapy groups include health education, LGBTQ issues, HIV, and chronic illness trauma, grief and loss, transgender support, nicotine recovery, education, and sexual health. Pride Institute offers a residential treatment program, a partial hospitalization program that includes day programming with lodging and an intensive outpatient program. If you or someone in your life can benefit from guidance and coping skills, life balance, and other tools necessary for long-term recovery, check them out at pride-institute.com or call 800-547-7433 now. I'm Steve Conklin. And I'm Jake DeRoff. We're the hosts of The Mortgage Talk Show, Sundays at 1230. Every week we bring you insights on home financing, discussing rates, programs, local and national news. Whether you're buying your first home or your hundredth home, we have tips and inside information to save you money and feel like a mortgage master. Check us out for more information and email us any questions at mortgagetalkshow.com. Tune into The Mortgage Talk Show every Sunday at 1230 on AM 950. The okay. A night out with Chelsea Handler, live this Tuesday at the State Theater. I'm doing a tour where I go around to different places in this country and talk to people who have different opinions than me because I want to learn more, I want to understand better, I want to have nice, healthy conversations with strangers who think differently. A night of fun and interactive discussion with Chelsea, hosted by TV's Jenna Shortle. What is the most important issue for all of you in this room? Is it foreign affairs? Is it legal immigration? Is it dancing with the stars? Tickets on sale now at Ticketmaster in the box office. Sponsored by Delta and Twin Cities Pride. Welcome back to Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, one of the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world. Okay, there you go. I had to get that in. But I'm also a practical idealist and I'm not afraid to talk about idealism. So today's topic, in Bard is about racism. I mean, that's what Jackie Robinson faced, and so I want to share with you how I, Ellie Krug, have encountered and witnessed racism in my life, and some of those, and how some of those experiences have shaped me. So, what some listeners don't know is I was born in Newark, New Jersey, uh, to a very working-class family, and. Uh, you know, born in 1956, yes, very old. I'm sorry, um, people my age, I'm just kidding around. We're not old at all, we're just young, just with age on us. In ni- In the 1950s and early 60s, when I was growing up, Nork was undergoing a transformation from majority white to majority black. And the first time I ever saw a black person, I mean, that I have a memory about, was walking on a residential street in Newark. And I um, had been seeing some black people Um, As a kid, I mean, you know, we're like talking maybe five years old. Um, But on this one instance, um, as I encountered a black man, I just blurted out to him and I asked why his skin was chocolate. I did. (laughs) My parents were quite appalled and apologized. Later, when I was seven or eight, my father took my family into New York City for the day. We did um, one of those great... It's one of my earliest fond memories about getting out of my comfort zone, about getting out of what was my circle. And we went to New York, we saw the Empire State Building. We did the Circle Lines tour on the boat around um, Manhattan. We saw other sites in the city, but at some point towards the end of the day. So this was in my memory, the sun was going down. We got lost and we were walking through a certainly working class neighborhood in New York where there were tenements and uh, it was uh, imagine, and and it was a, a black neighborhood, and so you have a white family. There was my mom and dad and us three kids, um, walking through this neighborhood. And it was a hot e- It was a hot afternoon. There were people out on their stoops, and we were walking by, and you know, you got three young kids looking. You know, only seeing white people in the neighborhood where we lived, um, because at that point we had moved away from Newark. We were living in suburbia, and so we're looking around. And I remember us coming to a stoop where there are two or three African American men on the stoop, and um, apparently our looks so. Um, uh, com- uh, got him angry, that he got down uh, off the stoop and confronted my father. They had an exchange of words. I vividly remember, I mean, I, I worried that my father was going to be hit. Um, he was giving my father a hard time, but there was no physical contact. And Eventually, my father talked his way past it. Later, in during the riots in 1967, when my family no live- longer lived in Newark, um, I... Um, and what, and part of my family was an uncle who I adored. I mean, I just have to tell you, he was like my father. Um, there's a whole story between my birth father and me. We don't need to get into it. But, um, I remember watching the 1967 riots with my uncle and I remember seeing scenes of police officers beating looters and they were using their Billy, Billy clubs and hitting people on the head. And I remember my uncle yelling, go get him, go get that N. That's not, you didn't use the word and you know what he was saying. And you would think that because all of this, this would have shaped me in a negative way, but it did not. Because by then my father had bootstrapped himself to professional job. And uh, I'd previously spoken about how my family used to have Sunday dinner tradition. So meal on Sunday. Um, was uh, about two or three in the afternoon, we would invite people over and that included people of varied backgrounds, Asians, blacks, Jews. And somehow I remained immune to the racism that was around me. Um, And, you know, um, so I did not really become an overt racism at all, racist at all, but certainly I suffer from unconscious bias. Part, I'm, I benefit from a system where people of color are marginalized just about everywhere. And when I transitioned genders, I was made more aware of how the system is stacked. But one last story that I want to talk about, which is the one that burns in my memory the most, is something that I witnessed here in Minnesota in the early 1990s. So remember, I'm transgender. Um, I was married to my soulmate, Lydia, Um, And we raised a family. Well, Lydia's family was, um, many of them were from Fairmont, Minnesota. So if you know anything about Fairmont, it's in the southwest part of the state. It's a city of about 25,000. And in the early 90s, it was a very white town. I don't think I ever saw a black native um, of Fairmont, Minnesota, um, on any of the several times that I visited that city. Well, one of Lydia's nieces graduated from high school and attended Concordia College here in the cities where she met and dated and eventually married a black man, Richard. So this would be a mixed race marriage. And I'm only telling you that to give you some context, not that there is anything wrong with um, a biracial marriage. And so, um, uh, but there was an event that happened when I was visiting and... And Richard, the man that she married, um, the niece married. He was a, he was a, a big black man, and I say big in the sense that he was a teddy bear. He was very likable, wonderful personality, the kind of guy that everyone loved. I really envied him for how likable he was. And, um, so we were all collected in Fairmont and Richard and, um, the niece were there visiting, uh, as well. I actually, I think Richard and the niece were still dating. And so, um, uh, and then, uh, so, and Lydia had another nephew. So this family in Fairmont had two daughters and a nephew and, and a son and the nephew adored Richard. Um, and and they like to go fishing together. And there's a large lake in Fairmont. So on this occasion, when I was in Fairmont with my family, Richard was there having this gathering. Richard took the nephew, my nephew, my, by, um, by uh, in-law nephew fishing and I went along. I think I had my girls with me as well. And we went down to the lake and Richard and the nephew were fishing off the dock. Um, and uh, they did that for a while. And as we were doing that, I noticed um, we were having fun. I mean, it was just a nice time. And uh, Richard was quite the fisherman and, you know, instructing the younger nephew about how to fish, da-da-da. Um, but as we were doing that, a boat came up. And it was not, you know, this was a speed boat, not a, like a, you know, a putt-putt fishing boat. It was a speed boat, And on it were three young men, three white men on the boat. And the boat came up on the dock. And I noticed as the boat was approaching, I watched as Richard tensed up. And then I watched as the three men on the boat, as they got closer, all that they did was stare at Richard. They were looking directly at him. They didn't look at any of anyone else on this dock. And it was as if their eyes were assaulting Richard. It was. I'll never forget that. And then one of them, one of the men, one of these younger men, I'd say in their late teens or early 20s, got off the boat, got on the dock, and he got up to Richard. He got up close to him, and he just stood there looking, staring at Richard. And all that Richard did was stand, stand there and, and look, stare back at him. It was a stare down. It was. Neither meds man said a thing. But you could see the hatred in the eyes of the white man towards Richard. Now, this stare down lasted only about 20 seconds um, at most. Um, And then the man and his friends walked off the dock. This man and his friends, they didn't even know Richard. It didn't matter. It was just the color of his skin that caused them to react with such, uh, that hatred was right there. I saw it with my own eyes. And I thought to myself, wow, but you know what? I never ever, I didn't say anything to Richard after that. I didn't know what to say. Um, And I wish, um, I, I lost, when I transitioned genders, I lost that part of my life. All of the folks from Fairmont, I lost them. I didn't, they've not come back to, they don't accept me as Ellen and that's okay. It's just the way it is, but if I could, ever see them again. I would want to talk to Richard and I would want to tell him, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I didn't speak up. I'm sorry that I didn't say anything, that I didn't at least stand up. And I, you know, and I know why I didn't, I mean, I was scared. I didn't know what to say. And at that point I was preoccupied with fighting myself. And it was very hard because I was trying to stay a boy, not become a girl. And long, long story, read the book, as I say, um, But that one day, that one event has shaped me. Racism and classism and sexism is like a killer fish. I mean, let's just use the fishing thing even further. Racism is always like, it's always like a killer fish lurking under the surface, just ready to show itself when the time is right. We all need to be aware of this. We need to shut down overt racism. You can shut it down. Not cool, dude. It's an easy thing to say. I know, not always easy, not at all. And we need to be aware of how systemic racism affects everyone and everything. Okay, well, there you go. That's another show in the bag, as we say. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio at AM 950. If you've enjoyed the show, email me at Ellie 2.0, 2.0 Radio at gmail.com. Let me know what you'd like covered. I'd, I'd love hearing from my listeners. I do. Does this show help you at all? I'm an idealist. I want to know. A big thanks to my producer, Hunter Hawes. Thank you, Hunter, for all that you do for me. And listeners, thank you to you. Visit my website at Um Sign up for my newsletter, The Ripple. I'll be back next week. Take care. Bye-bye.